this area is getting to know some of these um, students, people early on in their career. That's also one of the shames is, is seeing them for a short time and move on, but we uh, entrust them to the Lord. So First Peter, we come now to the end of our little text here in First Peter. If you remember, verses 3 through 12 of First Peter 1 is one long rambling sentence. So Peter gets started in verse 3. And he starts in this way, and then he just sort of keeps going and going and going and going and going and can't can't really end. So trying to diagram the sentence is is quite a task as you work all the way from verses 3 to verse 12. But it does break down sort of naturally into three sections. If you remember, we we looked at the first section there, verses 3 through um, 5, 3 through 6. And and we said Peter here is just painting for us the picture of the beauty of our salvation. And then in verses 6 through 9, he, he moves on and immediately introduces that we rejoice in these things that the Lord has done for us. And yet, our lives now as elect exiles are lived in the midst of trial and suffering. And then he moves on beyond that, and we'll see this morning this idea then as he closes out. But this, this first picture that he paints for us isn't to be set aside as we move on to life and what it looks like now to be elect exiles. But this picture, we said, if we could think of it as becoming somewhat transparent, that now it's a painting that we look through and it becomes a lens, really, by which we view the rest of life, how we approach our trials, how we approach the life we lived in. We're always filtering it through the gospel. And so when we come to verse 10 then, he begins in verse 10 by saying, concerning this salvation. Remember, in this long sort of drawn out sentence, concerning this salvation, it looks back to to verse 9 where it says, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. But it really moves all the way back to verse 3, concerning this salvation. And it is this, that according to the great mercies of God, All of life lived in this arena of the sovereign mercy of God. According to his great mercy, he has what? He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has given us new life. He has given us new birth. He has worked this sovereignly according to his mercy. He has caused us to be born again. To a living hope, a sure hope. And why is it living and sure? Because Jesus Christ is risen and assumed in that is that we will be raised with him. That's why it is a living and a sure hope. But he has also caused us to be born again, not just into a living hope, but into an inheritance. And he says it's unfading, it's imperishable. Nothing can touch it. But remember, he doesn't leave the people there. He's... He says, okay, well, you're walking in in a difficult time. There's a great inheritance, but what does that mean to me right now? I might never reach it. And God promises, no, again, according to my great mercy, I am keeping you for that inheritance, and I am guarding that inheritance for you. And the statement as you begin, verse 6, is in this we rejoice. It's not a command. It's just it is the obvious outcome of this grace in our lives. But immediately then, he introduces the suffering. He introduces trials. All of this, though, continues to be our salvation, the salvation of our souls, the outcome of our faith, which is the salvation of our souls. 
God's working, but also the trials that he introduces into our lives. And he tells us that we're all going to face trials. They're, they're going to be various. It's going to look different. They're going to be momentary. Uh, momentary might be most your life, but in comparison to eternity, they are momentary. Compared to the unfading, eternal, imperishable inheritance he is giving you, your trials are momentary. He says in there that they're grievous, too. Just because they're momentary, he doesn't belittle them. They might be heart-wrenching. But really, the key piece to all those trials is that they are purposeful. They are not random. They are not wasted. They are purposeful. He says, if necessary, God will give these trials into your life. If necessary. Then he tells us the two reasons that they're necessary. Really, one reason works out two ways. One is that idea of the purifying of your faith. And you know that illustration, right, of the, the fire that purifies the gold and the heat comes on and it, it, it gets hotter and hotter and hotter. The gold melts and the impurities rise to the surface. They can be skimmed off. And he says trials work that way with your faith. When the fire is put to your faith, when trials, when testing, when some suffering comes and the heat really turns up, the impurities raise to the surface. You start to see where your hope and where your comfort has been. You start to see just how much you fear man and, and how much you seek comfort and how much you seek acceptance and what the competing idols are in your life when the trials get turned way up. And God in his graciousness for the salvation of your soul turns up those trials and by his grace and by the spirit begins to, to scoop away those impurities, filter out those impurities from your life. It says, so that in order at the end that your faith may be glorified and worthy. That is, that, that the more pure you can think of it, the, the brighter that gold is of your faith, the greater it reflects the glory of God to others and back to himself. As Peter will say at the end, so we are given that crown, that eternal crown of righteousness that we can cast back at the Father's feet to praise and to worship him. It's a purification of your soul, purification of your faith. To what outcome? The salvation of your soul. And so when we get to verse 10, it says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. That's everything we've covered to this point. According to his great mercy, the new birth, the inheritance, the life that we've been given, the trials that we've been given, and how they work in our life, all of that is the grace that these prophets are prophesying about. And really, they point us forward then, as you continue there in verse 11, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ in the subsequent glory. Again, speaking to our salvation, the suffering of Christ and his subsequent glory. What I want to do is just make a few clarifications on the passage here that hopefully will help us understand, grasp what is being said. There's a lot of words he, he fits in, a lot of little phrases he fits in here. As we can grasp that and then four observations for us as we move forward. First of all, we see here the prophets who are prophesying about the grace. We've already 
said what that is. The, the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, everything that we've covered up to this point, they are prophesying about this grace, which is to be ours. They searched and they inquired carefully. So you have the prophets here, and you can think back, the Old Testament prophets, who declared the suffering and the subsequent glory of God. They are searching, they are inquiring carefully. They're not just making a pronouncement and walking away from it, but as the Spirit is moving in them, they make this pronouncement, and they're trying to figure out... <laughs> wrap their minds around, what is this pronouncement of judgment that I'm making? What is this promise that I am making? They go back to the law and they look at the scripture that they have at that point and they compare their, word, their words with that scripture and they search and they inquire and they give themselves to understanding what it is that the Lord is working in them, what it is that they are prophesying. And so it continues there. <clears throat> They searched, they inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time. Now, if you have a different version, I'm using the ESV, if you have a different translation, your words might be a little different there. They're inquiring what person or time. I don't think, I'm definitely no Greek scholar, but I don't think that person is probably the best translation choice there. There's two words there, and it really is that they're inquiring what time or what manner of time? The words are very similar. And so um, with Greek, you have these, they call them the semantic range. It's, a, you know, you get a word and it can have 50 different, you know, things you can choose from it that, that it means. Uh, and so it's a wide semantic range. Typically context brings that down to us, brings that down for us. A certain author, the way they use it will bring it down for us. But in that semantic range, when you, if I use similar words twice in a sentence, you would just assume I mean them the same way. I don't mean one this way, and then I say it again and mean it totally differently. Does that make sense? So if I just said, I jogged there and I jogged back, you wouldn't think, I walked there and I sprinted back, even though maybe within the semantic range that would fit. The same is true here. So it's kind of what time or what manner of time. I think that's important to us because the prophets are, are prophesying of a, a king who will come who will reign forever. The, the father of all nations, the, the answer to the Abrahamic covenant, the answer to the Davidic covenant. One who's going to come and bring devastating judgment. One who's going to come and, and establish complete justice and complete equity. Uh, it's, it's this devastating sort of majestic pr prophetic word that they have of a coming king. And so it, it would be surprising to them. It would probably not make total sense that why is he coming to suffer? That doesn't really make sense. It's the same thing we see when we get to the New Testament, the Gospels, right? When Jesus comes, it's, they heard the prophecies and they're expecting a more powerful political person or a military person who's going to come in power and might and just wipe people out and destroy all the enemies of God's people. But he comes as a babe in a manger, meek and lowly. And so it seems to be this idea of, of when is this going to happen? Is it going to happen in our generation? When is it going to happen? And also, what manner of time, in what way, in what season of time will it make sense for a conquering king to come and yet suffer? 
And that's when we get to the New Testament, the fullness of time. Born of a virgin, born under the law. That, that's the manner of time. All the historical events that are taking place. The prophets, as they prophesy, they are trying to look into it and understand what time or what manner of time. The spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the, suf and the subsequent glory. So our next little thing just to figure out is the spirit of Christ in them predicting. What is this talking about? How is the spirit of Christ at work in these Old Testament prophets predicting? Well, first of all, I will just say the spirit of Christ is the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. The, the spirit is referred to in the New Testament in a lot of different ways. Actually, you go to Romans 8. Just in Romans 8 alone, you have Spirit, Holy Spirit, Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Him who raised Christ from the dead, the Spirit of life. It's all referring to the Holy Spirit. It's not a whole lot of different versions of the Spirit. If you listen, here a few texts just to kind of bring it up. Romans 8, verse 9. It says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Listen to Philippians 1, 18 and 19. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. One more passage, just as a reference, as it uses this phrase, spirit of Christ. Galatians 4. Four through six, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. I think what Peter is doing here in using spirit of Christ is he is pointing out to us that it is the same spirit that is working in the prophets. It's the same spirit that is indicating in the prophets the time of the sufferings and the glory of Christ is the same spirit that is now working in these New Testament evangelists that you'll see in verse 12 who is proclaiming those events that have already happened now. It is the one and the same spirit. The spirit working in the prophets is the same spirit that descended from heaven upon Jesus Christ. The same spirit that empowered him in his ministry. The same spirit that right now is in our midst, indwelling us, that unites us. That is taking this word and illumining it and, and writing it upon your hearts. It's the spirit of Christ. And you begin to see the unity of the message of God going forward. The unity of this spirit. That is, that, that is going forward. That it is the spirit of Christ himself predicting his suffering in order that right now it is the Holy Spirit empowering the message of the New Testament preacher about his suffering and his death and his resurrection and his glory. And so you see the spirit of Christ working in that way. One author says it this way. He says, the spirit that was fire in the bones of the prophets was the Spirit of Christ driving forward to the salvation he must bring. Listen to Amos 3, 7, and 8. As it talks about prophecies. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. 
then this is how he's done it. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? As if to say the same lion of the tribe of Judah who will open the seals of judgment is this, the same lion roaring in the words of the prophets. It is the spirit of Christ in them. So that answers, hopefully, clarifies some what is being said here in this passage. So what are four observations then as we look at these verses together? Four observations I think that Peter wants us to, to see and understand. First, we are a privileged people. First observation, we are a privileged people. Peter's stating here, as you look at it, that we are privileged historically. Within redemptive history, we are privileged. Above the prophets, we are privileged historically. And then above the angels, we are privileged cosmically. Within redemption itself. If you look there in verse 12, it says, It was revealed to them, that is the prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things with the, which the angels long to look into. The prophets were writing about this grace, but it's a grace for you. The prophets were writing for your benefit. They searched, they inquired, they longed to understand when and what season and how all this was going to take place. They, they were searching diligently to know it. But they were writing for your benefit. Yes, it was a benefit of their generation. And the Holy Spirit used it in their generation. But we stand on the other side of the gospel events. We stand on the other side of the suffering of Jesus Christ. We stand on the other side of the glorification of Jesus Christ. And these prophecies attest to that. They give us confidence and a surety that it was prophesied. And now we look back and we see it's also fulfilled. And so as Peter writes to people who are elect exiles, they are dispersed, they are facing suffering, they're facing persecution. It feels like there's, I have the worst case scenario right now for my life. And he says, no, within redemptive history, you are a privileged people. The prophets were writing, were testifying for your benefit. Jesus himself says it. Listen to Luke 10. It says, Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Even Jesus testifies to the privilege of the New Testament believer. The privilege above the prophets, above the angels as well. That phrase there right at the, the very end it says things which angels long to look things into which angels long to look it's the phrase basically i think it is important to get the translation right it it has the idea of looking into something from the outside you're longing to look into it the same phrase is used when peter and john um, visit the grave after they hear that from the ladies that Jesus Christ has risen, and they run to the tomb. And they says as they, they from the outside sort of bend down, peer into the grave. From the outside, they're looking into it. And that's a good 
picture here of what the angels are doing from the outside. They are, they are loving and they are longing and they are looking into, peering into something. We, we know that Jesus' angels, that the angels were witnesses to the ministry of Christ all along the way. They, they announced it. They celebrated it. They were witnesses to his birth, to his life, to his obedience, to his death. They were witnesses to it all along the way. But Jesus didn't come to earth on mission for the angels. He came on mission to save us. He didn't live in an obedient life in order to account that to the account of the angels. He did it for us. He didn't die on the cross for the angels. He did that for us. He didn't remain in the state of death for three days for the angels. He did that for us. His resurrection doesn't give the angels new birth. It does us. And the angels, as ministers of Jesus, they see it and they know it. And they're theologians in their own right. And they celebrate it. But they long to look into it to know that Jesus was on mission for them. And so Peter encourages the people. He encourages us this morning. No matter what you're going through. No matter how difficult it is. No matter how just stinky 2020 was. You're a privileged people. Historically, you're privileged because you look back on the redemptive promises of God in Christ fulfilled. And you are privileged cosmically because you get to be sons and daughters of Christ and share in an inheritance which he is keeping for you and which he is keeping you for it. So Peter reminds us we're in a privileged position. Secondly, the second of the four observations is that suffering is necessary. Suffering is necessary. If you remember when Pastor Adam looked at sort of the portrait of Peter a few weeks ago, when Jesus first told the disciples that he was going to need to suffer and to die, you remember Peter's reaction? He says, no, no way. Not on my watch. You are not suffering and dying. Jesus rebukes him harshly when he says, get behind me, Satan. This is the work of Christ that needs to happen. Those who stand in the way of it will be doing the work of Satan. And Peter still doesn't give in. He says, well, no, you won't be suffering and dying. Peter's with Jesus when the, they come to collect Christ at the beginning of that Passion Week or the, the Passion events. They come to collect Christ and, and to take him off to trial. You remember Peter, you're not taking him. He draws the sword goes after the guard that's coming and slices off his ear. It took Peter some time to realize that suffering had to come to the Messiah just as it was prophesied and predicted that it would. But eventually he did learn that he must suffer first and then there would be the subsequent glory. That's the order of things. Suffering first and then glory. It's the same in our lives. Trial, suffering, and then glory. It's not that suffering somehow in and of itself is, is just righteousness. That you know, if you whip yourself on the back, you're somehow being righteous. No, it's that God tells us that as necessary for our faith, in order for the outcome of our faith to be the salvation of our souls, it is necessary that various trials come of a momentary nature. They're purposeful. 
for the purification of your faith, in order that your faith might have the outcome that it was intended for, the salvation of your souls. But it's through trials that he keeps you. It's through trials that he perseveres your faith. That's the order of it. Suffering first and then subsequent glory. Peter establishes that right here. Suffering first and then subsequent glory. Affliction is not the Lord abandoning you. Affliction is not evil. Affliction is a necessary part of the journey of the elect exile. And those who cleave so closely to acceptance and to comfort, that, that is deadly. That's not the life of the elect exile. I'm not telling you to go out and look for suffering and just look for hard things. And I'm not telling you that life isn't full of joy and great things for you to enjoy. But you are in exile. You don't belong to this kingdom in which you are living right now. There will be some lack of comfort, some lack of acceptance, trial of some sort that you will face. And we don't just walk through it to get out the other end and get right back to how we were. We just get things back to how they were. That's not how the Lord uses trials. He uses them to purify you, to persevere you. <clears throat> you know this, but just a caution to remember. Jesus' suffering, though, is not just an example of suffering. His suffering is redemptive. Our suffering is not redemptive. It doesn't save us or save someone else. But it is how God uses and works in the midst of our trials to produce faith, repentance, and keep us for that inheritance which he is keeping for us. So suffering is necessary. The third observation from this text is that all the Bible is about Christ. And all of the Bible is for us. All of the Bible is about Christ and all of the Bible is for us. The message has not changed. Peter here establishes the relevance and the unity and the importance of the Old Testament for us. He's going to return to the Old Testament again and again and again as we look through this letter and in order to teach us about Christ and his redemptive works and in order to teach us about the ethical obligations of a Christian. We'll move there right in the next text. Pastor Adam will take us to that next week. <clears throat> but all the Bible is testifying to Jesus Christ, Christ himself working through the prophets as they testify about the sufferings to come. The glory that is to come. It's the same message then that the prophets is preaching. We look back on it and look at verse 12. <clears throat> it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit. The good news preached to you, the gospel preached to you. Both Peter can say in his day, the good news being proclaimed. It's what should, what, it is what should be happening from Every pulpit in every church is the good news should be proclaimed to you. That we're not getting too full of ourselves and, and too inventive and creative and coming up with a new spin and a new message. But we are preaching the same message that the prophets prophesied. Which Christ fulfilled. Which now we look back on and we proclaim to you. There's two things you should expect from your pastor in the pulpit. Well, at least two things. One is that they preach the whole counsel of God. And one is that they preach Christ and him crucified. 
Those things aren't in conflict. They work together. The whole counsel of God, Christ and Him crucified, that's the same redemptive story and message. Christ in all of Scripture. <clears throat> you remember in Luke 24, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they're walking together and they're chatting on the, the road to Emmaus. It says they're chatting about the events of the last several days, which have been the, <clears throat> the trial, the death of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ comes up and joins them. He's, he's been resurrected at this point. They don't know who he is. And so he just walks along and kind of joins in the conversation. And they're talking. And, and they're <clears throat> saying that it was prophesied that he would, that he would rise. But, you know, it, he, either he wasn't the Christ, something went wrong. Because he's been dead for several days now. And they just, they don't understand what happened. How did the king end up dead? How did he suffer? And in verses 25 through 27, Jesus says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and then enter into glory? Sound familiar? Suffer and then enter into glory. And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scripture the things concerning himself. <laughs> Jesus takes them to Moses, and he works through Moses, and he works through the prophets, and he works through the Psalms. And you know what he's talking about? That Jesus Christ must suffer and then enter glory. Later on in that same chapter, Jesus says, These are my words that I have spoken to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture and he said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. All of scripture has been proclaiming this. All of scripture is about Christ. And therefore all of it is for us. <clears throat> The other unifying mark of scripture is that it is the same spirit that was working in the prophets. The same spirit that was upon the waters at creation, that was working in the prophets. The same spirit that descended upon Jesus Christ. The same spirit that we have right now uniting us to the Son, uniting us to one another. That heritage that we share with the prophets themselves. It's weird, isn't it, when you think... How God would choose to, to work in his people. How God would choose to move and be powerful. To take an old message and then have men stand up and talk about it. And that's going to be life changing and universe changing. And yet it is the spirit of Christ taking that message. And, and empowering the speaker. And as it goes forward, illumining hearts. It is God taking the word as you sit there and you look at it and you read it, that it becomes alive in your heart and it convicts and it enriches and it gives breath and life. <clears throat> we talk about being Christ-centered. How Christ-centered is this text? <laughs> Spirit of Christ predicts the sufferings of Christ. Christ fulfills his own predictions and suffering and the New Testament preachers preach about Christ. By the power of the Spirit of Christ. What are we doing trying to get fancy and put a new spin on something to entertain people? It's the message of Christ. Finally, 
the last observation here is the gospel as proclaimed from scripture is glorious. The gospel as proclaimed by scripture is glorious. Christ predicted it. The prophets gave themselves to it. The angels longed to look into it. New Testament preachers proclaim it. The Holy Spirit brings it to us. It is a glorious gospel. I think it's a good way to end, to challenge ourselves as we leave 2020, move into 2021. I don't know how you guys do resolutions or what you're, how you operate that way, but scripture reading often is the new year's a good time to sort of readjust your mind, refocus your heart and your mind towards being in the scripture. We know that the gospel, as it's revealed in the scripture, is glorious. We see the prophets, we see the angels longing it, and yet we can just become bored with it and spend zero or very little time giving ourselves to the word. Let me just encourage you to use this time to recommit, re-energize yourself to being in the word. Whatever effort goes into it, it will not be wasted. That by the Spirit, he would help you would pray. The Spirit would, would give you faith and endurance in reading the Scripture. Whether you want to read through the Bible in a year or two years, some of those plans, if you can give it that sort of time, it's worth it. Maybe you know, I'm new to Bible reading. There's no way I'll make it past January 4th if I'm on that plan. Then find something that is a small snippet, five minutes somewhere. There's a plan, five by five by five, five minutes um, of Bible reading, five minutes of contemplation, and I forget what the other five is. But there's different Bible reading plans like that. Table Talk Magazine, little one page or two page, look at a couple verses, meditate on it. That you would give yourself to the word. The, the, The outcome of not giving yourself to it can be really deadly. I think especially those joining us at home. I know 2020 has been really difficult for the church, for a lot of people who haven't been able to be with us for health reasons since all the way back in March. And so I applaud you for remaining diligent and faithful online service. Don't grow weary in that. It looks like we have a few more months of it probably. Do not grow weary in it, but, but, but give yourself to hearing the word proclaimed. Pam and Gerard, it was great to hear that as your prayer request, that you, you, you would go and you'd be diligent to find that in your own life, in your own heart, to, to be in a body where the word is proclaimed. So I encourage you, it's a glorious gospel. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit <clears throat> unites us to one another. Lord, the Holy Spirit which moved in the prophets, continues to move in us today, Lord. May you take the word as proclaimed and write it on our hearts. Give you just a few moments, continue there in quiet thoughtfulness, and then we'll respond together in song.